0: Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today.
1: Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Maxime Carmignac, who is CEO and Director of Carmignac UK Limited. Carmignac is a family-owned asset manager with a footprint across Europe and Maxime sits on the board of Carmignac. She leads Carmignac in the UK and she's also responsible for strategic product development within the firm. So Maxime, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. The topics that I'd really love to cover together today are your focus as a fundamental, discretionary, active asset manager and where there are real benefits in your mind to having the man versus the machine, having the human at the heart of the investment decision rather than the data. I'd also love to touch on ESG as a topic because I know that you are 100% integrated in your own words and you use ESG as a backbone to many of your investments. I'd also love to touch on the end investor that you're servicing, which is ultimately the retail investor. So, Maxime, could you start by setting the scene and introducing yourself and your firm in your own words? Thank you, Eloise. So, I'm um, Maxime Carmignac.
2: I've been working at Carmignac since 2006. And previously, I worked in M&A at Morgan Stanley and also consulting at McKinsey. Today, I'm leading the product development, uh, sponsoring ESG, investment solution, and strategic diversification on top of running the UK office. So as you said, Eloise, Carmignac is a family business, which is actually quite rare in the asset management world. So indeed, the company was set up by my father almost 35 years ago. Thanks to our family status, we are independent, and therefore it also gives us the luxury of time. We are not like a publicity listed companies with quarterly targets, having to meet a mother's company's strategic objectives who have one and only objective, the long-term investment needs of our clients. And something also which is, I think, uh, set us apart, and it's like all thanks to my uh, father, he has a, a DNA of democratization of the best possible product to retail investors. Indeed, most of our client base are retail. It can be through intermediaries, so B2B2C,
1: but it's still retail investors. That's so interesting. And it's actually a theme that comes up in a lot of our podcast conversations on this channel. What I call it is the democratization of content and intelligence to the retail investor. But I guess what you're talking about is the democratization of investable products to the retail investor. And the fact that philosophically, this sounds like it's very important to you. But it's also a trend that seems to be happening anyway, given more and more online and social media type platforms, which are providing access to more intelligence for the retail investor. So you're an active manager and you focus very much on independent and proprietary research. So how do you go about ensuring that this intellectual honesty is upheld from your portfolio managers? Yeah, indeed, you know, we are not trying to compete
2: with a huge quant and CTAs. We know what we can do and what we cannot do. Therefore, you know, we are focusing then on the human value-add work and to go deeper, to do the extra mile in order to understand corporates better than the market. And one thing we've been doing in terms of hiring is to hire hard-working uh, analysts, but also from the private equity world that they won't left any stone unturned. And I think now we are seeing like Polarization in the industry. Either you compete on scale, on data, and on quant, or you thrive as a boutique doing the extra mile at some specific niches where you can focus. And I think one example of that is ESG. It's very interesting in ESG now because in Europe, and uh, actually uh, even more in the US, around 50% of the ESG flows now are passive. And actually, those 50%, 80% of them rely on MSCI data. So 40% of ESG flows rely on, on MSCI data, which we don't think over the long term makes sense and is in the best interest of clients. That's why you know, I think that ESG is a good example where you need to have a human being looking at the company, talking to suppliers, competitors, Analysts, in order to do the extra miles and go beyond this pure tick boxing MSCI uh, quant data, to understand whether or not this company, ESG-wise, is well-positioned and will perform over the long term.
1: That's fascinating. And we hear a lot, uh, particularly on our data-driven podcast series, from the more systematic investors. It sounds like the other end of the spectrum to you, investors leveraging very large data sets with complex machine learning and quantitative tools. So it's fascinating to hear from you and your firm, which is very much the other end of the extreme, going the extra mile, as you say, deep diving using human intelligence and intellect and experience. When you think about how can the human Human have edge over the machine. What's your answer to that? Is it the fact that they are focused on just a few companies and going really deep into those companies? Or are there other sources of edge? Yeah, it's a great question because indeed, you know, on the bottom-up corporate side, you know, for credit or for
2: equity, indeed, you know, we do the extra miles and we try to understand the companies better, the management. And also the fact that we are a family business and that we are long-term oriented means also that we can build long-term relationships with the management. And uh, therefore, we have uh, this open line of conversation. But one thing also in terms of combining data and uh, human value add, as I said, we don't try to be good at everything. We want to be the best at some specific niches. And we have picked two specific niches as it comes to data and quant. One is about uh, human experience and one is about family business. So about family business, we mentioned it. I experienced the, what I call the family business magic, you know, this extra marriage, this collaborative mindset. And I had this feeling, but it was just an intuition, that well-run family business will overperform non-family business. We hired a quant, actually, from FactSet, who was responsible before for the database of voting rights at FactSet, the global leader. And together, we worked for more than one year with pure quant, pure data, to see whether or not family businesses will overperform non-family businesses, you know? And I, I had just an intuition, you know, and indeed, you know, looking at the numbers, the data, indeed they do. But mm. which is interesting is that in terms of top-down and uh, analytics is that they overperform, but actually you have some clusters. For instance, they overperform only in the low market, not in emerging markets. Mm. mostly from governance uh, reasons. They overperform in some sectors such as healthcare, consumer, financials, they tend to underperform from other sectors such as oil and gas and mining, for instance, and utilities. And also it depends also of the percentage of voting rights. If the family has below 10%, you don't feel the family effect. So no yes. performance. And if the family has above 80%, then they tend to ignore minority shareholders. So you have a sweet spot between 10 and 80% of voting rights, and also terms of generation. We understood that the family uh, magic works from the first to the fifth generation. And after the fifth generation, most of the time, you lose the skill in the game effect, therefore not overperformance. So this is what we've been working on, and we created Carminac 500 database, referring to the Fortune 500, which focused only on family businesses. And we have now lots of data since, I think, uh, 1975 in order to see which kind of overperformance you can expect, depending on your segments.
1: That's really interesting.
2: The second thing we're focusing on is what I call human experience. I'm looking at companies where both employees and customers are happy. And, you know, if I had told you that five years ago, Eloise, I think I would have sounded quite vague and wishy-washy. But I think that the beauty now is we have much more data and quality of data, you know, you can see, of course, of the rise of social media, Google Plus and uh, and all these reviews, TripAdvisor and so on. And now, you know, like uh, the second most important criteria to buy after pricing now is uh, online reviews. So you have this exponential growth of data. And therefore, now I think that as an asset manager, we are able to gather the data, to clean the data and to have strong analytics and see in a pure quant way, which are the company best ranked in terms of employees and customers. For instance, YouGov now provides daily data of customer satisfaction. Again, I had this strong conviction and we did like a back testing and we noticed that those companies unsurprisingly overperform, happy customer happy employees and so it's a virtuous circle you know because good products good companies then your company is doing well so you can hire the best employees we will do their best for the uh, the customer so it's a very good uh, positive dynamic and i also created a fund which i called human experience relaying on those data
1: absolutely fascinating thank you for all of that well, you covered so many points there. I think you've really touched on the importance of a family-run business and the benefits of that. And related to that, all of your research around the outperformance of family-owned businesses under certain criteria, like the family needs to own more than 10% of yes. the shares. And then you've spoken to another really interesting theme, which is the man versus machine, human versus systematic. And it sounds like while you see major edge in the human doing the deep dives, you are still leveraging data in many ways. You're leveraging natural language programming processing. You still do have a place for data and systematic and quantitative techniques, but it's not the be all and end all by the sounds yes, of things. Yes, absolutely.
2: As you say, Louise, no, we have to be very humble and we'll never compete with the data and quant giant. But what we want is to focus on some specific niches. Then our value add is to analyse the quality and quantity of data and to pick the best
1: possible with the best uh, relevance in terms of price action. Brilliant. Thank you. So I wanted to pick up on the topic of ESG, and you spoke there about the fact that so many passive funds now use ESG, and of those, I think you said 80% rely on MSCI data. So there's definitely a risk there that they're all looking at the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. Overcrowding, yes. Overcrowding, not necessarily proprietary. What's your view on the ESG space as as a whole? What are you trying to achieve by having an ESG lens? Where do you think we as an industry are doing things well and where do you think we need to improve in this domain? Yeah, it's a a fascinating question. I think that first
2: we're in the infancy, you know, Mm. in terms of uh, combining ESG and asset management. I think that an asset manager... In the context of lack of disclosure from corporates, in the context of absence of clarity from regulators, and also changes of ethics stances from investors, you know, for instance, before uh, Russia, defense was bad, no talk about security, Mm. nuclear was bad, now it's good, No, like, so it's still like moving past. So in this, like, uh, difficult context, I think as asset manager, our role is to be very transparent in our process and our criteria mm. in order to empower our clients, depending on their own ethical sense, to allocate their capital. So we yes. have to be very transparent. We have to be very humble. Also, why humble? Because, you know, like even if you look at the uh, CO2 emissions, only less than one third of global CO2 emissions come from public companies influenced by uh, investors. You have those national companies and you have all the different CO2 polluters. So I think that being serious, being humble is very important. Yes. And the way we've done it at Carminiac, and coming back to your data uh, point, we have uh, created our own tool, which we call TART, which has two legs. One pure quant data. We are using 38 different data points from nine different data providers, which automatically provide the base for each company we invest in. So we look at ESG before investing because this is part of our investment process for 100% integration. And you know, we prefer to address the companies that are not necessarily the cleanest today, but that are going to the right direction, we can engage with them over the long term. Because as Bill Gates has said, divestments to date has saved about zero tons of emissions. You don't want to invest only in the clean company today because those companies, they don't need us. You know, they are overcapitalized, they are well-known already, you know. You
1: want to address when you can have the highest incremental impact. Yes, no, that makes sense. And... You spoke at the beginning about the democratisation of products to the retail investor and the importance of the retail investor as a customer base for you. And now you're speaking about ESG and I think you said 100% integrated. So, this idea that all portfolio managers look at ESG as one criteria of many when they decide whether to invest. I'd love to understand your perspective on the retail investors' views on ESG. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that the retail investor cares deeply about ESG and has that changed over time? Yeah, it depends. I think that's Two big points. The first one, because you know, at Carmignac, we have offices in uh,
2: Italy, Spain, Germany, Switzerland, uh, Belgium, France, and the UK. And I spend lots of time visiting my clients. And I was this summer, I visited my six offices this summer. And there is a very big difference, you know, if you go to Germany, Belgium, compared to South of Europe, you know. Mm. (laughs) So I think that uh, there is like a time of uh, lag, you know, South of Europe versus North of Europe. There Mm. is a much higher interest uh, in North of Europe today. So it's very interesting to see depending on clients. But I think in terms of retail, as you say, the big difference is age, generation. Mm. The younger investors, they are much more focused in terms Mm. of uh, ESG That is the old generation. Yes. So, which is very promising in terms of ESG because <laughs> demographics will help, you know, it's a tailwind. Yes. But yes. indeed, you know, like you cannot say that everybody is investing in, just in ESG, you know, it would be, it would be a lie. What I noticed the most is huge top down pressure from large corporates, you know, it comes from the top management and the board, yes. you know, and yes. it's there to infuse into the whole company, you know. But for me, ESG is not a silo or is not a top-down wishful thinking for the the top management. For me, it's like a tea bag. It has to infuse the whole organization. And that's what I'm dealing with my clients and I'm very happy about that.
1: Yes, absolutely. You mentioned earlier when I asked about the benefits of discretionary investing versus data-driven systematic investing. One of the benefits is that your portfolio managers can spend a lot of time with company management and they can really understand the company perhaps from a different dimension than a systematic investor purely looking at the data around that company. Do your portfolio managers then have the ability to influence management in any way? It's a great question, especially to
2: differentiate from passive. Again, because we are long-term investors, we build long-term relationships and we can do engagement. So mm. we engage with the companies in order to uh, go with them towards the right ESG direction. You mm. know? So depending on the relationships and our relative size as a shareholders, either yes. on the equity or the debt, we try to do our best to influence uh, the company. Thank you. About family business, you know, there is a quote from a a French author, which I I loved. And it's a good way, I think, to combine ESG and uh, family businesses, you know, because Saint-Exupéry in The Little Prince has said, uh, you don't inherit the planet from your parents, you borrow it from your children. So it shows you that this intragenerational purpose and if you translate that to a family business, you say you don't inherit a family business from your parents. you borrow it from your children. you know, which shows you like how long term you have to focus and this huge luxury of time that you benefit from
1: incredible. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more earlier about what really are the benefits of the family-owned business. And I think you spoke to the fact that you need to have this true ownership culture. When you go to work, you own the business. You deeply care about the outcomes. Skin skin in the game. Skin in the game. Exactly. But equally, the long-termism must be a fundamental factor driving so many family businesses. The fact that you are working for future generations, your future generations. Yes, brilliant. Well, we've covered so many topics here. I think we've covered the benefits and the advantages of family-owned businesses and employee-owned companies. We've spoken about the retail investor and not only the democratisation of content, which I so often go on about, but also the democratisation of products available to the retail investor. And then we've spoken about ESG and your view that ESG should be 100% integrated into the investment process and the relationship between the retail investor and ESG and fascinating to think over time of these younger generations caring more deeply about these topics, which is absolutely a tailwind for the theme of ESG. And then we've also spoken about data-driven investing from a fundamental discretionary lens and the fact that data is still critical and you do try and leverage it where relevant, for example, in measuring the human experience via online reviews and that sort of thing. So, absolutely fascinating to hear your perspective on all of these themes, particularly because it's quite different to the perspectives I hear from systematic portfolio managers, for example. So, Could we turn now to the UK? You're obviously CEO of Carmignac UK. You're a European business. So I'm fascinated in a post-Brexit world that you have a deep footprint here in the UK. Can you speak to why you feel the UK is an important market for you? My father and I, we always say, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, you know. (laughs) The
2: UK, because it's a very competitive market and it's also a fascinating market, you know, because I think that the UK is much far ahead in terms of tech and regulation compared to continental Europe. You know, like in the UK, 15% of the flows are D2C, thanks to also the fantastic growth of platforms. So I think this is far ahead of continental Europe, so we have to learn from that. It's super interesting. So just to clarify that, 15% of the asset management industry is done uh, direct to the consumer, consumer, whereas only less than 5% in continental Europe. So this is a huge gap. And yeah. uh, I think that this is a history, you know, to have more like direct to consumer. So we are learning from that. And also in terms of regulation, you know, we had uh, in the UK, the Retail Distribution Review, RDR, as only as 2013, you know, whereas in Europe you had to wait for me feed, you know. So we are learning also in terms of, of regulation and also in terms of talent. You know, this is fascinating because when I joined Karmignac in the UK, there were like four of us, now 65 of us. And it's also uh, thanks to the huge talent attractiveness in the UK, you know, despite all that we are seeing in terms of Brexit, we are still able to attract top talents in the UK that would not have necessarily accepted to go to Paris. And also the size of the market, you know, in terms of retail investment, the UK is larger than France and Germany combined for us, you know, addressable markets. So this is a huge opportunity for us, but it is a difficult one, you know, indeed, because it's a very mature market and a very competitive
1: market. Wow. So, you've gone from four people in your UK branch to 65 people today and it's exactly. now, just now become a subsidiary. Absolutely, yes. Thank you. So, really interesting landscape, the investing landscape in the UK, the fact it's more competitive, the fact it's more mature, the fact that direct to the consumer is that much higher, more digital, as you say. What about UK equities and UK markets as a whole? Is your UK business also disproportionately investing in UK assets? It's a good question.
2: Actually, uh, not. You know, we just want to find the best possible countries given the specific uh, uh geopolitical context. So it yeah. depends, I will say, on the years, you know. Yes. But something we have done specifically to the UK is to create a fund which is called Carminac European Leaders because it's a European ex-UK, long-only equity fund. Why? Because UK investors, they like to do their own UK asset location themselves. Therefore, they want a building block, which is the best of Europe without the UK.
1: And this is
2: a a product we created more than four years ago. And this is for us, like I would say, a UK dedicated product. Yes. Even if there is no UK
1: inside, it's quite paradoxical, but uh, that's the way it works here. So we have to adapt to the market. Wonderful. Well, we've covered so much, Maxime. So I guess before we go, my final question for you would be about your views on the industry at large and the way the industry is changing, particularly your part of the industry, which is active investment management. Has the skill set required changed over time? Is the investing opportunity set different today? What are your thoughts on the future of the industry?
2: Yeah, I think that this industry now is facing lots of changes. Now We have this triangle between a tougher regulation higher competition from ETF mm. and also technological disruption. Yes. So we are clearly being disrupted as we speak. So I think if you look at the long term, only the best will survive. You know, but it's clearly a challenge. I see a polarization between the largest ones competing for scale from cost and uh, the niche one, you know, like some like uh, boutique. We are working hard to differentiate themselves and provide something special to their clients. If you're in the middle of those two uh, trends, you're going to be squeezed and you have started to being squeezed, you know, and therefore we've seen lots of consolidation already. This summer, for instance, PwC say that one out of six asset managers will disappear by 2027. I think this is happening already. But there are also some bright sides. You know, we discussed ESG, yes. even if it's quite uh, still awkward today. I think this is fantastic, you know, as a young leader like me to be able to uh, have an impact on energy. This is like a blank paper, you know, like in Virgin territory. So this is fascinating the impact you can have, even if you have to stay uh, humble. And something also which is a positive change, I think is diversity, you know? Yes. And I, I can only be grateful for all the efforts that are being done for women in the professional world. You know, like, I think that I can only admire, you know, for instance, what Cheryl uh, Sandberg, you know, the former yes. CEO of Meta, has done, you know, with the Lean In. And I will encourage any woman... Actually, any man, because she's a great business person, you know, to read her book, you know, to lean in, to ask for the next internal mobility, salary increase, promotion. You know, this is something that doesn't come always naturally to women. So this is like for the professional world. But for me, I think that Eloise, the most most fascinating part as it comes to uh, gender diversity and men and women inequalities is women as investors, because I think there is a huge investing gap and today there is a lot of attention in terms of women as professionals, which is great, of course. As far as I am concerned, not enough attention for women as uh, individuals, you know, the empowering women financially. Because a woman who is empowered financially is independent and therefore the life is much, much easier, you know. And I am shocked to see this gap in terms of financial education between men and women, you know, like it comes from the family, it uh, continues at school and also the media, the press, you know, there is not enough attention, spotlight on women as investors and education. My concern is that women in general are much less aware than men about this power of compounding. It is very unfair, you know. And I think that uh, what makes my heart beat, you know, (laughs) on top of my company, you know, is to try to reduce, you know, this huge inequality and to make this power of compounding more obvious to women. So to raise awareness on this power of compounding. And also, last thing is to also provide women with products that fits their needs better, you know, because there have been some fascinating studies, including some from JP Morgan, by the way, which show that women and men, in general, they don't have the same expectations as it comes to finance, you know, women are more interested in the why should I invest versus men the how do I invest, you know. I think you need to provide women with a very simple and transparent product with high sustainable criteria as well, with more
1: long-term focus. That's absolutely wonderful. I love the points you're making. You know, there's this focus on women in the workplace and women in their yes. professional careers, which, we, which is great, which is fantastic. We shouldn't downplay that. Yes. It's, it's critical. And, and I think we both believe strongly about that. But there's women as investors, women who are starting their compounding journey early, women who are building up their pension pots from a young age. That's absolutely. what we really need to be striving towards. We've come full circle, really, to the retail investor and the importance of serving products to the growing retail investor, but also, in theory, the more informed retail investor because of availability of information. And females should be just as much the retail investor as males and providing products that they want to invest in. Excellent. Thank you so much, Maxime. It's been a really interesting, inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you,
2: Eloise, for your questions. I think it was super interesting and we covered a lot.
1: And yeah. I get lots of numbers
2: because I know you love numbers and I do <laughs> love numbers too. So I hope it would not look like a geeky uh, conversation.
1: Oh, they're the best. They're <laughs> the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to understand more about Carmignac or the things discussed by Maxime today, then do take a look at our show notes. Otherwise, if you have further questions, do go to our team's website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together JP Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced to products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade his principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.